0: Well, thank you, praise team and choir. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 4 with me. I'm really glad that our children are in our service with us today for family worship. And so, boys and girls, we would encourage you to uh, nudge mom or dad and see if you can find John chapter 4 and follow along when we read that passage in just a few minutes. We're really glad that you're here. Pastor Mark is on vacation this week, and he asked me to briefly mention that uh, there's been no significant change with Emma. They're continuing to ask us to pray for uh, improved breathing and sustained breathing. Uh, so continue to pray to pray for Emma. Uh, Pastor Mark left off in halfway through John chapter four last week, and so I thought that I would pick up where where he left off with the very well known story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And before I read our text this morning, I'd like to briefly review what we covered last week. And to do it a little bit differently, I'd like to place it in the broader context of John's gospel. We're up to chapter four and this story fits into a particular place in this gospel and we're going to consider that. The gospel of John, as you may know, begins with some remarkable news. We sang about a lot of this this morning. Uh, At the beginning, on the one hand, it tells us the good news of God who was willing to come, that the one who created all things, that he became flesh, that as he came, he took on a body and came into the world as a baby to save the world. Just think about that. The one who had no beginning now has a birthday. Isn't that cool to think about, boys and girls? But tragically, the world, and particularly his own people, those who were made by him, they didn't recognize him. We just sang about that. He had no form to draw our attention. John chapter 1 says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But John tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called sons of God. This dynamic of God's special people not recognizing him is played out in a variety of ways in the Gospel of John. If you think, you'll have to think back to last year, but you only have to turn a page or so to look over in John chapter 3, where we studied the story of of Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a Jew. He was a special Jew. He was, not only was he one of God's special chosen people, but he was a religious elite and political, uh, political ruler. And so if there's anyone in the world that is more familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, I mean, it would have been Nicodemus. If there's anyone that should have recognized Jesus and should have understood, it should have been Nicodemus. Do you remember Jesus said, "Are aren't you a teacher of Israel, and don't don't you understand these things?" And Nicodemus didn't understand. But I want you to notice, just remember that in chapter three, we have a picture of Nicodemus coming to Jesus when, what time of day? Is it nighttime? He came under the cover of darkness. And even though he's asking some good questions, at this point in the story, Nicodemus leaves unsaved. But think about how different that is from what takes place in John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, we have a Jew, a special religious Jew, coming to Jesus at night. And then in John chapter 4, what happens? We have a Samaritan woman meeting with Jesus in broad daylight. It couldn't be any more different not a, it's not a, she's not a religious leader but rather a despised desperate samaritan woman a, a social outcast among even her own people apparently she had some serious relationship problems we learned last week that the samaritan woman had 5 husbands and was now on her 6th maybe that's why he was afraid to pull the trigger because he knew some of the past history but either way We see Jesus talking to her, a scandal in its own right, talking to her, a Samaritan woman in broad daylight. And then at the end, unlike Nicodemus, not only does the Samaritan woman leave a child of God, but she brings other people to Jesus. I think that's an intentional contrast that the authors want us to notice. And I can't go back through all the details, but let me just give you some highlights That will frame our story for us. You'll notice in John chapter 4, the story takes place at a well. Now for us, 21st century readers, we are not super familiar with wells. We may not care about wells and the additional details that are given. We're told that it's Jacob's well. And that detail can seem a little bit awkward. uh, But if if we learn to read our Bibles well, I did a pun. You hear that? Only three of you appreciate the pun. Right? If we learn to read our Bibles well, then some bells should go off for us. Jacob's well, historically, has been a place of romance, a place of marriage and intrigue all throughout the ages. right? This, Jacob's well is where Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac. It's where Jacob met his wife, Rachel. The well is even where Moses met his wife, Zipporah. Jacob's well is a place where historically brides have been wooed to their husbands. And now we have Jesus meeting a woman who is desperately, desperately thirsty. We know this when Jesus comes speaking to her about living water. Living water that if she were to drink it would well up in her to be a fountain of eternal life. It's always satisfying. And Jesus knew that she was thirsty, not only because she was at the well, but because uh, she had had five husbands and was on her sixth man. It's a point that Jesus brings up. When she's talking about religious things, Jesus just cuts straight to the point. You've had five husbands, haven't you? It's <laughs> cut straight to it. Here's a woman who's desperately seeking life. Desperately seeking happiness, security, love, comfort. And it wasn't working. She had been for far too long drinking from broken cisterns. Even through her pursuit of sexual and relational satisfaction, and even though her relational attempts had cost her everything, she was empty. And she was unsatisfied. I'm quite certain that there are people in this room today, your story may be different from the Samaritan woman, and your story may be different from mine, but you are like me and like her seeking happiness. You've been seeking satisfaction. It might be through a game on your phone, or it might be through a relationship. It might be a particular bank account or a job goal. But deep down, we have all tasted that those pursuits are empty. They can't ultimately satisfy. And my prayer this week has been that some of you would come in here feeling that. Feeling that emptiness. Just like this woman. Because now, the Samaritan woman who is too ashamed even to be with her own people, now she stands face to face with Jesus. I think there's some wooing going on here. Boys and girls, are y'all here with me? Can we say wooing? I just think that's a fun word, wooing, right? Go home and use it in a sentence, or ask mom and dad to. We sort of pick up in the middle of the story where where the disciples, who are clearly not thrilled to be in Samaria, are coming back with food. And so let's pick up with the story there, and let's read uh, starting in verse 27. The scriptures say, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was speaking with a woman. Am I starting in the right place? Yes. Okay. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Then Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering and, and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39. So many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. I pray that you would accomplish what only you can, because the work that needs to be done today cannot be done by human hands. So do it, we pray. Produce fruit and glory for yourself and strengthen your church. We ask this in your name. Amen. In your Bibles, you should notice that there are, in most of your Bibles, there are textual divisions, there are little paragraphs in this story, starting in verse 27 to 42. And there are three different paragraphs that divide this section, and they're, they're in good places, and they make something of a sandwich. In the first one, starting in verse 27, we see a, the Samaritan woman who is responding to Christ and then running out to tell everyone she knows. The next section, the bulk of this passage, is 31 through 38, where the disciples are given rest- instruction on the importance of their mission. And then finally, in 39 through 42, we see many Samaritans come to Christ and be saved because of a woman's testimony. I think we can organize our main idea around these three paragraphs with these these sentences. We could put it something like this. In paragraph one, sinners are saved. Sinners are saved. In paragraph two, the saved are sent. The saved are sent. And then in paragraph three, the Savior is seen. Lots of S's, sinners are saved, saved are sent, and the Savior is seen. Let's look at these one by one. First, the sinners are saved. In verse 27, we jump right back into the narrative, and it's clear that the disciples are not happy about this arrangement. Even though they keep their feelings a secret, John, our author, is quick to expose that the disciples had secret racism and sexism deep within their hearts. And it confirms that this woman indeed was an outcast. But verse 28 tells us something interesting, that the woman, after meeting Jesus, she left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see the man that has told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now I want to draw your attention to this detail we have about the water jar that she left why should we care that she left a water jar I mean does John is he including that for a purpose I would think that's what authors do right he gives us that detail for a purpose the water jar is not particularly valuable I mean what significance could her leaving it have to do with this story but I think the water jar, the abandoned water jar, reminds us of the conversation that just took place in what we studied last week. In a story about spiritual water. Jesus had just taken a, a common act of drawing and drinking water to satisfy physical thirst. And he had turned it into a spiritual lesson. He'd taken something normal and turned it into something spiritual. We see this back in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. I think we can sympathize with the woman's confusion, right? He made a big change. This real housewife of Samaria had suddenly become aware, at this point in the story, of a new thirst. That she had more than physical appetites, but that she had spiritual appetites. God had been and was at work in her life, and she was beginning to see that all this time she'd been looking for satisfaction. She'd been looking for acceptance and safety and pleasure. But now that Jesus had come, now that her eyes were opened, she could begin to see that earthly things, even things that God made, water, marriage, sex, relationships, even though they are good, they can't satisfy. They cannot satisfy our ultimate spiritual desires. Only Christ can. And so this woman, now enjoying this new discovery, left behind her old water jar, a symbol of her old earthly pursuits, and chased after Christ. She had met Jesus Christ. It's interesting that she goes running through the village with What has to be a surprising testimony. She said, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Now remember, the Samaritan woman's life was a mess. She knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody in the village apparently knew it. And the woman who had been so ashamed that she would not even come to the well in the morning when most women would gather water because she was afraid of what they would say, She didn't like the whispers or the stares. She was too ashamed by the life that she lived. That very woman, when she came face to face with Jesus, he exposed her. Do you remember that? She was asking him a question about where to worship, and he said, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right, you've had five, and the one you're with isn't your husband. He completely exposed her. He just cut straight to it. Friends, when we come to Christ in the gospel, he completely exposes us. The Bible does not mince words. The Spirit of God is not particularly gentle. He doesn't worry about hurting your feelings. He just says it as it is. Your life is offensive. Your sin is offensive to God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. God says, in fact, you're so bad that you should be and could be cast into hell for all eternity, and that would be just. And this woman, even though she had met Jesus, who spoke straight into her sin and straight into her problems, she didn't argue. She knew he was right. She couldn't argue. But notice what happened. Something strange happened to this woman. Suddenly, a woman who had spent her entire life hiding, her entire life pursuing false joys, something happened. She came out of hiding. She came out. After she was exposed by Jesus, she came out of the shadows and into the light because she realized Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn or wound sinners. Jesus came to heal and to save sinners. Friends, this is what the world doesn't understand about our message. This is what they don't understand about all the condemnation, right? That the glory of the gospel is that for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we can say, though my sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In 1 John chapter 1, the apost- John tells us that if, friends, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. If you expose yourself, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive and cleanse. He can make you clean. No matter what you have in your history, no matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you've made, The good news of the gospels, for that those who come to Christ in repentance and faith, He may, He will expose you, but He can forgive and cleanse you, and that is good news. And then you can join us who say, "Hey, (laughs) I got nothing to hide. Christ has already exposed me." And so it's with joy that we receive the word that even though it steps on our toes, as we often say, her sins had been exposed and they had been cleaned. All who come to Christ must follow in this woman's steps. We must not only confess that we've done bad things. I've never met anybody who said, I have not done anything wrong. We all confess, not only have we done bad things, but that our hearts themselves are far from God. And that we have hearts that do bad things And ultimately, our hearts do bad things because we want to do bad things. Which is why we need Jesus so desperately bad. This woman had been totally exposed by Jesus. But her shame and her guilt were gone. Because she had been healed. With Jesus, sinners are saved. Sinners are saved. But let's move to the next point in this text. The saved are sent. Verses 31 through 38. The narrative switches over to our beloved dense disciples who don't know what to make of Jesus' provocative spiritual conversation. So they did what any good Baptist would do. This is awkward. We should eat. That's what I would do. Right? Seriously, they were were worried about Jesus, who had been exhausted, so tired after their journey that he sent them on to get uh, food. But Jesus had spiritual things on his mind. They were so concerned with the food. I mean, how did he get food? Like, who did someone else give it to him? Right. It's time to eat. But he had spiritual things on his mind. Just like with the Samaritan woman who had been thinking about physical water, Jesus changed the subject from physical water to spiritual water. And in the same way with the disciples who were thinking about food, I don't know if they had pals in Samaria. Perhaps it was pals. They're, now you're thinking about pals. Back out. Right. So they were thinking about food, and he directs it to spiritual food. I have food to eat that you don't know about, he said. And by bringing it up, by telling the disciples, you don't know about this food, he's saying, hey, you don't know about this and you need to. You should. Now, friends, we know that we know a lot about the disciples' ministry. Like they were into ministry. Like they were church people, right? they 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 left their careers they left their families they faced danger and persecution they lived a life traveling they had been baptizing and preaching right they like they were into ministry and i'm sure they were fine with ministry and here jesus is saying hey the ministry that you seek is not nearly as important to you as it should be it's, it wasn't as important to them as it was to christ we see this because Jesus tells them that ministry in his life was as central to him as it was food. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus was so concerned with obeying the Father, so concerned with accomplishing the mission of his life, that obedience was more important than food. Christ, I mean, food is necessary to sustain life, and yet it was obedience was more important. Christ put the very highest emphasis on obeying the Father's will, even when he was tired, even when he was exhausted, so he likened it to food. For all of us, food plays a central role in our lives. Most of us organize our lives and our days around uh, times of eating, right? And that's not unique to our culture. That's all cultures, we have, we have rhythms of our day that, that are built around eating. Perhaps you know one of those strange, rare creatures who says, man, I was just so busy working today, I just forgot to eat. Have you ever met one of those people? I want to smack them. I have never been so busy that I forgot to eat. Right? It's like not possible. <laughs> Shouldn't? No, yeah. All right, right? It, it doesn't make sense because we organize our lives in many ways around this. I remember all the time. And it's because God has designed our bodies to need food and to need it frequently. What happens if you go without food for 12 hours? Man, you are hangry, right? You've seen those Snickers commercials, right? That's what happens to us after 12 hours without food. And yet Christ is saying that obedience was what he was desperate for. Obedience was utterly central to his way of life. And for Christ, obedience means doing the will the Father and accomplishing the work that he was sent to do. I also think that like food, there's a very real sense where obeying the Father actually nourishes us, right? Food nourishes us, and Jesus is saying, hey, obedience is like food, so he's saying in a sense that there's, there's a way in which obedience nourishes him. Sometimes we need to simply obey the scriptures to grow. You might be involved in all sorts of church activity, all sorts of praying, all sorts of Bible reading, all sorts of CBR, whatever it is, but you're not growing much because you need to simply obey. Charles Spurgeon made this point with great force to his congregation, and so I'm going to share what he said to them. It's very Spurgeon-esque. Some of you good people, Spurgeon says, who do nothing except go to public church meetings, the Bible readings, the prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual dissipation. You would be a good deal better Christians if you would just look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men. Then you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for. Nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of the things of the Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the ways of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders that you begin to groan and to murmur, and to look within until you are ready to die of despair. Do you see Spurgeon's point? It's not only eating that is necessary for health, it's also exercise. If you eat a bodybuilder's diet and fail to exercise like a bodybuilder, you will not be healthy. Right? It will not take long. It is the same is true for our Christian lives. It is so easy to be consumed with spiritual busyness that we actually fail to conduct spiritual business. There's a very real spiritual sustenance that comes from serving Christ. One that comes from serving other people. Spurgeon links it even to despair and depression. My wife and I have noticed this in our home and our marriage at times when things get hard and we kind of get mopey and we're kind of looking in and kind of complaining. Just recently, we were kind of doing that. My wife said, we need to go serve somebody. She was right. Because it looks away from ourselves outward and enables us to to exercise all the spiritual nourishment that we're feeding on all the time. Perhaps that's the missing link, the missing ingredient in your walk with the Lord. You might be getting impact points every day from CBR, but if you're not actually obeying you're not, you're not growing. Sometimes Bible study and prayer are not enough. But we don't need to miss the point here, right? The main point that Christ is making is one of urgency. One of urgency. In verses 35 through 36, Jesus is making it clear that the time to work, the time for Christian ministry, the time for soul harvesting is now. There's a lot of depth to this point, and we'll keep it simple but it's pretty clear for us, right? I mean, I'm not big. I don't have a farm. But I understand that in agriculture, you plant a crop. And then you wait for several months before you try to reap a harvest. You can imagine how silly it would look for someone to sow. And then the next day be out like shaking their fists at the heaven. Why, God? No corn. Why? And you say, well, you got to wait, right? That's the principle of agriculture. But that's not necessarily true in, when it comes to spiritual things. The time to reap for the Lord is now because sometimes the harvest comes immediately. Again, remember what's happening in this text. The disciples are sitting here thinking about food, but all around them in the text and then like literally all around them, there is a Samaritan revival taking place and they're just worried about food. Verse 30 says the Samaritan people were flocking to Jesus. You can imagine him saying it was as if all the people dressed in their white robes were coming to him. And then Jesus said, look, the fields are white with harvest. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of people. He's referencing the Samaritans. Lift your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. In verses 36 through 38, Jesus is picking up on some very rich Old Testament imagery. Imagery and language that harkens back to extreme fruitfulness and prosperity, where there is so much abundance, there's so much abundance that as the sower sows, as the planting guy plants, (laughs) right, as the sower sows, the reaper has to come right behind him and gather all the harvest, because it, the, the crop is so abundance, which means the joy is great, the celebration is great, the resources are great, the wine is great, right? There, it's a picture of joy. Friends, this is a word of great optimism for us in our evangelistic task. And so it shouldn't be a hard word for us to hear. If you are going to follow Jesus... If you've been baptized, if you're a member of this church or another church, if you have publicly said, I've placed my faith in Christ, I trust in him for heaven and for the forgiveness of sins, I am a follower of Christ, then listen. You must organize your life around the work of the harvest. You should give the Great Commission the task of Strengthening disciples and baptizing new disciples, you should give that great commission as much attention as you give food. Sharing Christ, doing the work of the kingdom, growing disciples, it is not a hobby. It is not some religious obligation. It is not the thing that you fit into your family's schedule when your kids are finally done with their sports games or your family obligations have finally lessened up. It's not something that you fit in around other stuff. Right? The church staff should not have to beg you to be a part of ministries. We, as Christians, should be organizing our lives around discipling people and taking the gospel to those who don't know him. It is not a side gig. It's not a hobby. Instead, we should each be asking major questions. And we as a church need to ask questions about our finances and our times and our ministry. Asking questions about our lives, our budgets, our hobbies, our careers, even where we live. If we should participate in such and such sports activity. How we should engage with our neighbors. All trying to figure out how do I organize my life around the work of God because that's what we've been called to do. Of course, we remember that this ministry is a cooperative thing, right? Some sow, others reap, some reap, others sow. Ministry is both. Often we are doing sowing. I love the story of George Mueller, a mighty man of faith and prayer, who as a young man had met three men who didn't know the Lord, so he shared Christ with them and They had no interest in spiritual things. So they went on their way. And for years, George Mueller prayed for these three men. And at the age of 92, when George Mueller died, none of them had come to know Christ. But guess what happens? After George Mueller died, the work of the Lord did not die. The work of the ministry continued. Two of these men came to faith in their 70s, and the other In his 80s. Some sow, others reap. Reaping should not be our only measure of success. Just recently, I invited a friend to church and he said no. Okay. Some sow, others reap. But no one sows accidentally, it must be our priority. Final section is that a savior is seen. A savior is seen. Verse 39 through 42. The narrative shifts away from disciples from the disciples back to this great revival that's taking place around them. And you'll notice how it started in verse 39. What sparked the revival? It was all because of the woman's testimony. The woman's testimony. Friends, do not despise the power of just an ordinary testimony. I know a lot of you are uh, going through one of our equip classes, Jesus Among Secular Gods. And you're talking about some heavy stuff, right? Lots of isms, right? Postmodernism and secularism and atheism and agnosticism. And, and, you're, and you're trying to become more skilled in understanding secular worldviews so that you can take the gospel to folks. That's great. We should do that. We should make every effort to do that. I bet Jesus put time into preparing food so we can put time into preparing for the work. But don't underestimate the power of just saying, hey, can I tell you about what God has done in my life? I used to be empty and now I'm full. I used to really struggle with despair and now I know, not perfectly, but now I know a joy that I I couldn't even have dreamed of. My marriage has changed. My relationships have changed. Can Can I just tell you what Christ has done for me? Don't forget the power of an ordinary testimony. You don't have to win your neighbors to Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. But you do have to speak. Speak up and tell them what Christ has done for you. So, you cannot reap what has not been sown. Perhaps you'll get to reap right away. Perhaps someone else will come behind you and enter into your labor. So look how Christ used the testimony of a sinful woman. I mean, do you think that you know more about the Bible than her? Yeah, you do. And look how powerful her testimony was, right? Look how Christ used the testimony of this woman. She she basically went out and said, hey, I know y'all think I'm crazy, but this man saw me and he loved me anyways. And he forgave me and he cleansed me. He removed my shame and now he satisfied me with living water what a great testimony. If you know Christ, that's your testimony. It doesn't matter what sort of past you had. We all were in darkness until he called us into marvelous light. But also notice uh, last week we saw back in verse 4 that the text said, John is very clear, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Like it wasn't something they wanted to do, it's something they had to do. Perhaps Jesus had ministry plans, but now we see why. Because of the faithfulness of Christ who carried out the Father's work, even among the outcast, even among the rejected, even, even when he was exhausted and weary. And then because of a sinner's testimony. The gospel did not only go forth to the Jews, but it goes to the world. That's one of the major points of this passage is that salvation is not only for the Jews. God is a worldwide God and he will receive worldwide praise from all peoples and every tongue and tribe and nation. But remember, Jesus is no longer here. He left. We sang this morning, he has ascended into heaven and he's now seated at the right hand of God where he is governing and ruling. So how are people going to know about Christ? Jesus can't tell them. He sends us. He gives us the church, his spirit, and sends us into the world so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would say, just like the Samaritan said in verse 42 Now we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. It is different to know about Jesus and to know that he is your Savior. Is this your profession this morning? Do you know this Savior? I know that with all the people in this room, we all come in and we have been drinking from all sorts of wells. We've been tasting, just like Mark said last week, having a cup in the world and a cup in Christ. We've been tasting from all the pleasures the world has to offer. And my prayer has been that we would be deeply dissatisfied, especially if you don't know Christ, where you've never known what it's like to know eternal peace. I'm not sure who you identify most with in this story. But every single one of us should identify with someone in the story. And it can't be Jesus. It can't be the one who always obeyed and accomplished the work of the Father, even though it took him to the cross. Perhaps you identify most with the disciples. You know Christ, but you don't really feel the weight of his mission. You're thinking more about physical food. You certainly haven't organized your life around it. But I think all of us, it's in some way, identify with this scarlet-lettered Samaritan woman at the well. Her and her six men. Just like her, we have all sought to satisfy ourselves in the deepest longings of our hearts with broken cisterns. We've all drank deeply of the water of the world. We've all looked for meaning not in Christ, but in his creation. And deep down... We're still thirsty, and we know that. We need living water that will truly satisfy. Friends, the good news is that Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so you can be found. I find it interesting in this story, the story that takes place at Jacob's well, the place of wooing, a place with history of romance, I find it interesting that this woman who was on her sixth man came face to face with Jesus, the seventh man. Could Christ have been the seventh man? Seven in the scriptures is a symbolic number symbolizing fullness and completeness. Jesus alone offers water that will fully satisfy. Turn from other sources, and come to him. Jesus wants to meet you. He's calling, he's wooing. Leave your water jars and come to him. Find love, forgiveness, and eternal life. Let's move into a time of prayer and invitation. Father, everyone here, if we're being honest, we have to say that there are ways, perhaps dozens and hundreds of ways, that we have sought ultimate satisfaction in things that are not you. Father, help us to realize that that is sin. I pray that right now in this time of this service, that even though we've done this many times, what I pray that you would work by your spirit to convict individual hearts of ways that they are seeking happiness apart from you. Lord, I pray for people in this room that are ashamed. Ashamed of what they've done. Ashamed of who they are and what they've become. For those who are despairing, who've been thirsty for so long. I pray that they would meet Christ today. And, Lord, I pray that we as a church, that you would send us on mission, that we would organize our lives around what you've called us to do, that all the world might know this living water. We ask this in your name. Amen. Will you stand with us? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You can come pray at the front or come talk with me. Respond to the Lord. might be someone who's here this morning and you have heard of Christ, but you've never met him personally. Friend, you do not know when your last chance will be. Could today be the day of salvation? If you would like to talk to a pastor or a staff member or someone around you, we would love to talk with you and share with you more about how to know Christ, but don't ignore his calling. Let's sing one more verse together. I
1: give all my worship to you.